0: Hello, everyone. You're listening to another episode of New Books in Critical Theory, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm your host, Louisa Hahn, and I'm joined today by Josh Bauscher to discuss his new book, The Informational Logic of Human Rights, Network Imaginaries in the Cybernetic Age, which is out with University Press later this month, is it?
1: Uh, yeah, it should be later this month. Um... Okay,
0: great. Uh, Josh is lecturer in sociology at the University of Sussex, following a recently completed Levy Hume Early Career Fellowship at Brunel University. He has a PhD in critical theory from the University of Nottingham, and his work has been published in Social and Studies, the European Journal of Social Theory, New Formations, and Theory and Event. Josh, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us to discuss your book. Oh
1: no, thanks uh, Thanks for having me. It's, it's nice to be able to talk about the book a little bit.
0: Yeah, um, I've been looking forward to having you on the show, actually, particularly as your book uh, it kind of introduced me to a range of fascinating debates in the realm of, of human rights scholarship as well um, as some of the ways in which contemporary technology and the digital proliferation of data has helped kind of shape approaches to human rights Um And to be honest, before picking up the book, I hadn't really thought in great depth about kind of the potential limitations surrounding normative conceptions of of human rights. Um, And I imagine this might also be true of some of our listeners, but um, I think it could be of interest to a wide range of readers including those um, with a broad interest in critical theory and and the real world impact of new technologies like machine learning on, on global politics. Um, so I guess with that in mind, my first question is, how did you hit upon this topic and decide to write the book?
1: Yeah, uh, thanks. Um, so um, my PhD project had already focused on um, human rights and a particular subfield of human rights. So without having to go into this in too much detail because it will just be distracting. But um, I was really interested in transitional justice in my um, PhD project. So transitional justice very quickly is things like criminal trials and truth commissions after conflicts. Uh, And they usually use the language of human rights to kind of articulate um, both what's important about the past uh, and also what's kind of important about the future going forward. Um, And so I was really interested, I guess, in the way that human rights discourses organized um, both the past and the future. and I was interested in the way that they produce particular senses of identity and and selfhood and individuality that are, I guess, kind of important and necessary for um, uh, contemporary capitalism or neoliberalism uh, in particular in some way. So that that was my uh, PhD project. Uh, and um, this project, I guess, came from something much more mundane to do with that, which was um, as I was doing the research for that project, I became sort of very aware that um, uh, all of these processes uh, need things like databases and software. And so that sprung a load of questions around who does that kind of work and why, how do those um, databases, or software processes, mediate um the, the, the past mediate discourses around human rights. And so that gave me an opportunity to think about um, using some theoretical tools uh, that my kind of uh, PhD training and some of the people um, at Nottingham while I was there, like Andrew Goffey, uh, those kinds of software studies approaches um, to, to thinking theoretically about the, the world. Um, it was an opportunity to, to start thinking about transitional justice in those terms um, and that theoretical approach sort of remains part of the book. But actually, as I as I started doing the research, I, I did quite a lot of archival research. And it became um, really clear to me that this issue spoke more broadly to human rights activism in general. Um, and that human rights was in some ways um, always a kind of information politics uh, where uh, data, information, uh, collecting and transmitting this this information uh, was central to the ent- enterprise, uh, and sort of even now uh, with the embrace of things like uh, machine learning and satellite imaging uh, and other kinds of information technologies, um, this idea of information um, was sort of central uh, to human rights and, and all of the kind of databases software all of the kind of practices that go with that. So for me, that raised a number of questions. Why did information become so crucial for human rights activists? Uh, At what specific point? What's the history of that? But also what's the politics of it? Is this a good thing or a bad thing that essentially we're um, sort of making information central to to activist practices? What are the kind of possibilities and limits that that poses for human rights work? Mm -hmm. So I guess those are the questions that got me started with the book. And, um, yeah, that's, that's, I guess where it, it kind of came from.
0: Yeah. And look forward to kind of delving into some of your, your case studies and, and theoretical formulations, um, shortly. And I think it would just be helpful to lay some, um, contextual groundwork for the audience beforehand. So could you just provide a brief sort of intro to contemporary human rights and the dominant institutions that determine how these rights are defined?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, So I guess when people think about human rights, um, their starting point, and and probably quite rightly, is usually something like the UN Declaration of Human Rights, uh, which was developed in the post-war period, I think 1948. Uh, And so they basically define, in a sense, the ethics of state behaviour and the rights that we have as individual human beings um, against the state, I suppose, in some ways. So there's a main body of civil and political rights. Uh, They are things like the right to life, Uh, The right right to vote, for example, uh, but also not to be, uh, I guess, arbitrarily maimed, killed or harmed by the state. Um, And so there's also a formally equal, but in reality, actually quite marginalised body of social and economic rights as well alongside that. And that was largely developed by the um, decolonizing states of the global south. Uh, and that encompasses uh, a kind of broader range of things. So based on the idea of, I suppose, um, human flourishing based on things like the rights to food, to water, shelter and so on. And so those documents have become the basis of a, a kind of international legal architecture that's developed um, massively, especially after the Cold War period, and that includes things like uh, regional courts, the European Court of Human Rights, which is quite often in the news at the moment, um, is one of those bodies, but also various bodies of law developed out of the UN and so on. on. But more than that, I suppose the idea of human rights that's come from that um, has become a kind of dominant dominant idea in our, our moral universe, I suppose. They've been, I suppose, hegemonized as the basic understanding of right and wrong or justice and evil in the contemporary world. So there's that. And then maybe to speak a bit historically for a moment, human rights didn't become that kind of dominant moral uh, discourse, if you like, uniformly or progressively following the UN declaration. So work by people like um, Samuel Moyne, but also Jan Eckel and others uh, show that human rights uh, and a particular kind of thinking about human rights Um, only came to the fore in the kind of late 1970s. Uh, So there's a few things around that. One is that the um, Carter administration, Jimmy Carter, the US president in the mid-70s, developed this idea of a human rights-based foreign policy. So that, that on the one hand, put human rights on the map. On the other hand, there was an explosion of work by groups like Amnesty International in this same period, Uh, other groups like um, Human Rights Watch as well. And there was this new kind of activism, um, I mentioned it a little bit before, but information politics, based on documenting information about violations of human rights, uh, and publicizing them in the hope that uh, it would be possible to shame governments into changing their behaviour. And this focused largely on civil and political rights. So things like um, arbitrary detentions, killing, torture, those kinds of things. Um, and so, there is a number of reasons that people like mine point out that this happened in the seventies. But things like the delegitimization of communism and revolutionary politics, as well as the end of moderate social democracy and, and developmentalism in, in the global south, because these things started to kind of wane in the seventies. Human rights emerged in this period as a, as a kind of new uh, moral vernacular, I guess, to fill to fill the space that was left by the the kind of death of some of those political movements and trajectories.
0: Yeah, so in, in the book's introduction, you you cover what um, is referred to as the neoliberal critique and human rights discourses, which locates the potential limitations um, of, of human rights and some of the hegemonic ideologies to emerge in, you know, the 70s and the 80s. So could you describe what, what we mean by this neoliberal critique?
1: Yeah, sure, of course. So, um, there are lots of different versions of this, uh, but people like Susan Marks, Jessica White, uh, and Joseph Slaughter are really the key touchstones for me. And uh, I make a critique of this work, but I should say that I also have used it quite a lot, and I think it's very useful as well. But the key issue, I guess, is that um, human rights, uh, sort of as we know it today, rose to prominence in the late 1970s. But also, and I'm sure lots of people who listen to this will know, uh, so did neoliberal capitalism. Um, so starting maybe in Chile and Argentina in the mid-70s, but accelerating with Thatcher and Reagan, uh, this new kind of neoliberal capitalism, uh, which responded, if you like, to the crisis of Fordist capitalism in, in that period. Um, and... Um, So the question really around the neoliberal critique of human rights is why is it that human rights emerged um, in this same period? And so the neoliberal critique argues that these things aren't uh, coincidental, they don't just simply run parallel, uh, but human rights and neoliberalism are in some ways deeply um, intertwined. Um, And the arguments around this um, go in a number of different ways, but broadly speaking, the argument is that human rights provided an ethical language that doesn't oppose or is even in some accounts aligned uh, to neoliberalism. So on the one hand, focus on denouncing uh, physical violence, things like detentions, killings, torture. Uh, brackets off uh, what you might describe as neoliberalism, socio-economic violence, so um, the violence of rolling back, if you like, things like the, wall, the welfare state, uh, etc. And on the other hand, it foregrounds uh, a very individualistic politics. Uh, so human rights is embedded with a concern for individual victims, a moral identification um, that people have between themselves and victims. It's very individualistic. Uh, and that's in, attuned in some ways to neoliberalism, uh, and runs counter, if you like, to a more structural, I guess, class or or race based um, emancipatory politics. Um, so yeah, that that would be, I guess, in broad brushstrokes, the the neoliberal critique of human rights.
0: Yeah, and as you as you sort of gestured to there, part of the aim of your of your book is to um, shift. Kind of critical human rights discourses away from focusing too solely you know on neoliberalism to look at um sort of uh this as you call it the informational logic. Um so could you go into what you believe are kind of the limitations of the neoliberal critique and some of the kind of the basics of your alternative approach um and maybe kind of touch on the key characteristics of this um informatic mode of contemporary capitalism you you describe?
1: Yeah of course so, um, yeah, to reiterate, there the are lots of useful things about the neoliberal critique. Um, so I think on the one hand, it's probably worth saying that um, there are lots of other things happening with capitalism in the 1970s. We often think about this as a break from Fordism to post-Fordism or to, from kind of Keynesian welfareism to, to Fordism, Um but there's there's things happening around this that I don't think neoliberalism, neoliberalism sorry, is especially good at, at capturing um, as a concept, and especially if we want to think about human rights um, as an in informational politics uh, concerned with producing and transmitting information somehow. Um, so to to sort of to go into that a little bit. While neoliberalism was uh, developing in the policy agendas of people like Thatcher and Reagan, it's also true to say that, um, I suppose, there was the emergence of what, what you might call the information age, the idea that uh, new computer technologies um, and new discourses of information were were sort of emerging in this period, particularly in the global north Um And um, this has been understood in lots of ways um, in terms of post-industrial society or post-Fordism. But it broadly includes, um, I suppose, things like factory automation, uh, the use of uh, logistical systems to outsource labour, the development of IT systems for financial capital, and following that, the development of things like the internet and so on. So while neoliberal policies were, I suppose, retrenching the working class uh, in the global north and also the anti-colonial states of the South. IT technologies uh, were actively being sought, I suppose, by capital as a way of um, rooting around uh, labour power, as uh, Mackenzie Ward puts it. So on the one hand, you have all of this kind of informational stuff that's happening in the 70s that neoliberalism doesn't capture. And on the other hand, um, uh, neoliberalism uh, also itself, one of its key uh, premises, I suppose, is that the market is a kind of information processor, um, the efficient allocator of resources. So it makes sense to think about or rethink neoliberalism in these informational terms, to think about um, neoliberalism as part of a broader landscape in which informational discourses and technologies are transforming capital and capitalism and and society more broadly. Uh, And um, as I argue, I guess that includes uh, human rights. So that's, I guess, what I would mean uh, by the informatic mode of of capitalism.
0: Great. So let's kind of um, dive into chapter one now, which focuses on cybernetic capitalism or uh, in other terms, uh, a mode of sort of dynamic and self-regulating capitalism supported by the accumulation and exploitation of data. So um, could you tell us a little bit about how cybernetics is implicated in, in neoliberalism's hegemonic projects and h- how this has impacted the, the human rights landscape. Yes,
1: yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting in a way because I am denied for a while about what to try and call this kind of informatic mode of capitalism, digital capitalism. But uh, by using cybernetic capitalism, what, I guess what I'm trying to signal is the involvement of cybernetic discourses, uh, ideas and technologies in the various aspects of this informatic mode. So just to sort of go delve back a little bit, uh, cybernetics, um, as I'm I'm sure lots of people listening to this will know, uh, developed in the post-war period as a kind of Cold War military science of information. And its whole premise, if you like, was to um, capture uh, or understand the world um, in terms of information systems. So it was in some ways about imagining uh, humans, uh, the social world, but also machines, biology, nature, as information processes, as somehow systems that function by moving signals between each other. Uh, and one of the key aspects here, I suppose, is um, recognition. So the idea is that signals are sent between us as people or machines or between us as, um, us and machines, and the person at the other end has got to um, recognize it. Um, or nothing happens, right? And so there's two trajectories of cybernetics. One is this kind of very material um, digital computation and technologies that are central to the transformations of the 1970s, Uh, but also, I guess, uh, the modelling of everything uh, as information systems, which includes uh, society at large. And so um, I suppose from the 70s, what you have is informational technologies and discourses that... Uh, shape um, understandings of the workplace, of the economy, of factories, um, uh, and also, as I mentioned before, neoliberal economics. In the 1970s, I guess, what's happening is uh, this idea of information um, is diffusing, if you like, through society and making itself um, part of a kind of everyday language. Um, And so... What's interesting about that, on the one hand, is that neoliberals have already sort of taken some of these informational ideas and embedded them in this kind of idea of self-regulating capitalism, if you like. Something where uh, the market, if you like, is a giant information processor sending signals back and forth. Somehow it reaches this kind of equilibrium. At the same time, um, as this information age was kind of emerging, um, human rights groups uh, were starting to think about uh, what it is they were actually doing um, and thinking in particular about um, the fact that their work was so much around producing and transmitting information, uh, primarily to states, either through the media or to government elites um, in order to shape, um, I suppose, changes in their behavior to to shame them somehow into doing something different. And so, um, In some ways, there was this um, attempt to think by human rights groups about what they were doing, and in particular Amnesty International. And so one of the things that they started to do was to articulate themselves as a kind of information system or a network. Um, And one of the kind of key ideas from that period was that the effectiveness of the human rights movement was based on its ability to shuffle information around effectively, effectively, um, quickly delivering it to the media and to government officials and so on. Um, so there are various efforts to try and do this, and perhaps we can we can get into that a little bit later. Uh, but one of the important things is that because information, um, as it's kind of conceived from cybernetics and, and then kind of making its entry into everyday discourses, it relies on this idea that information is somehow um, easily recognisable, non-controversial, non-contestable, Um, factual can be passed readily uh, by whoever um, is receiving those signals and so the human rights group uh, human rights groups like Amnesty International take on this this idea uh, and effectively think about their own information politics as um, trying to somehow um, produce signals that governments can readily recognize Uh, and in doing so they opt or they recognize that what they're Doing is trying to produce um, facts about violations, whether they be killings or detentions or torture or whatever. And they're just interested in producing these very, um, I suppose, bare facts, objective kind of slices of the real that can be passed quite readily by states that can't be easily dismissed and therefore uh, states, in a sense, have to recognise them. And obviously there's a, a kind of ideological function here uh, in the sense that uh, what is obviously passed as non-informational or has to be cut out and, and excluded are kind of politically contentious discourses. Um, so questions around, you know, why, why, are vi- why is violence happening in particular places? What's capitalism's role in producing, um, I suppose, the kinds of violence that human rights groups are, are interested in? So there's a kind of trajectory from cybernetic ideas, information that through a kind of process of diffusion um, becomes quite important uh, for shoring up a kind of um, anti-political, but also kind of deeply ideological idea of information that human rights groups are working with uh, from this period on.
0: Great. So let's kind of look a little bit closer at how technologies are um, applied by contemporary human rights organisations, specifically on the so-called events model of human rights, um, in which violations are conceptualised as um, discrete happenings within kind of a broader network. So could you touch on the events model of human rights and how it works to depoliticize the field, maybe?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so a couple of things to say. One is that um, the methodological disposition of the book, if you like, is to try and start from actually existing practices and to explore those in more detail at ground level uh, and to think about how they have this kind of depoliticizing effect. And the events model is one of those. So um, I mentioned before that human rights groups were doing this um, work to try and uh, think about themselves as an information system. Uh, And one of the things that they kind of stumbled upon and spent a lot of time in the 80s uh, trying to develop um, was uh, standards, informational standards, that meant that information that was kind of transmitted between groups or to states had these very standard formats so that they could be moved um, and passed quite quickly by whoever uh, needed to do that. And so the events model um, was a particular way of thinking about um, violations, whether that's killings or detentions and so on. Um, so in some ways, the specific idea around the, the events model is what are the key bits of information? What are the key units that are needed to produce a fact about violations? So normally uh, the events model thinks about violations as a specific event with a definite beginning and a definite end where one or perhaps several violations have occurred. And so each component under the event is, um, if you like, uh, latticed together in this kind of um, diagram, network diagram. So each um, violation or, or act that took place in the event, the alleged perpetrator of the event and the victim. Um, and those are the kind of key elements um, of the events model. Uh, and actually that that would later be coined as the who did what to whom model, i.e. Uh, which perpetrator did what act to which victim. And so this is like the basic model. Um, So there's a few things to say about that. Uh, That basically took um, near enough a decade to put together. Uh, And although it was never universally um, used, it's, or I argue in the book, it's a kind of paradigm for a broad way of thinking about human rights information. And so it functions by mapping things into boxes uh, and drawing connections between them. So, an event made up of an act, a victim, and a perpetrator, and that's all kind of mapped. Um, and so I try and think about what is happening there. And there's a kind of flat, what I call a flat ontology. Uh, you know, all that's there, if you like, are the objects that are represented by the boxes and the connections between them. Um, And this, I think, um, loses a sense of depth. It erases, I suppose, uh, social context that surrounds the objects and connections that are represented by this events model. Uh, And so, while it's very good at identifying discrete units of violence, if you like, it doesn't actually offer, or it doesn't make it very easy or possible to develop the kinds of analysis necessary to confront capitalism. Um, so just to give you an example of, of that, in the book, I use the example of, of, of Black Lives Matter. Um, so you could, in theory, use this events model uh, to record instances of uh, police brutality um, against uh, the black communities of the US or even here in the UK. But if the problem is a broader or, say, we couldn't deal with that issue without confronting racial capitalism, which is something that someone like Yanga Yamata uh, Taylor argues then the model offers absolutely no way to think about that issue. It's cleaved, excluded from, filtered out, if you like, from the event, uh, and literally, um, it, quite literally, in some ways, doesn't matter. So in some ways, the events model makes it impossible to think about these uh, instances of violence within the broader social context of contemporary capitalism. Uh, and that's uh, why I argue that it has this depoliticizing uh, issue, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. So yeah, you're, so moving on to your um, third chapter, which focuses on kind of the political valences of human rights indicators, which I found so interesting as indicators are often deployed uncritically within the logic of global capitalism to measure the development um, of a given society. So could you offer our audience a brief introduction to the history of human rights indicators and how they take social and um, economic rights away from the realm of the political, particularly to the global south, I suppose, um, and what kind of alternative approaches might have surfaced?
1: Sure. Um, So I guess to start, I I think it's, it's probably important to just briefly return to the development of economic and social rights um, and to um, point out that the development of those rights was in the middle of the 20th century largely developed by the decolonizing states of the global south. And there was a radical politics attached to those the development of those rights, particularly the right to self-determination, which people like Adam Getachu argues was so vital to trying to articulate a kind of, just post-colonial um, worlds, um, but in the nineteen by the nineteen seventies, um, with demands for a, a, a new international economic order or NIEO by uh, some of these kind of former colonized states, there was a real worry, I suppose, around the radicalism of, the, of this project and the relationship that it had to rights. So, and this is something that the neoliberal critique doesn't capture very well, uh, because it doesn't really talk about economic and social rights. But um, the argument that I take in the book is that um, from the Carter presidency in the late 70s, there was an attempt to wrest the discourse of um, economic and social rights away from the global south and to produce, I suppose, new ways of thinking about it that could be quite uh, depoliticizing. Um, And so indicators uh, became one way of doing that and they emerged first in kind of 1979 with the carter presidency um, and he decides or there's a project to to try and produce indicators for social and economic rights um, uh, because they're interested in in, um, measuring uh, the relationship that states have to human rights and whether they're very good at uh, protecting rights um, in the u.s at this point in time so it starts i suppose in this late 70s period but it's also a very uh, non-linear trajectory because there's several attempts to try and produce universal indicators the 80s isn't very productive and then in the 90s uh the un has a go at trying to produce ways of measuring um the uh level of um the level at which people enjoy particular social and economic rights. So to give people a sense of what indicators are, they're basically uh, statistics that measure the progress that a state is making in realising a particular right. This is in their most basic form. So, for instance, if we were measuring the right to food, we might measure the percentage of the population that were malnourished. And we'd hope to see that go down over time. So this is an attempt to produce indicators around economic and social rights. Uh, in the 90s it doesn't go particularly well because actually um, there's an understanding that um, it's actually quite difficult to measure these things uh, in a way that is um, I suppose uh, universally uh, true for all states or that can be quite easily and non-controversially produced year on year Um, and so um, after that kind of second failure, there's a, an attempt to um, create um, indicators by lots of different bodies. And, and that's kind of the situation we're in now where there's lots of different kinds of indicators floating around. But in terms of trying to wrest away um, the discourse of economic and social rights away from, from the South, uh, indicators have kind of embedded in them a particular logic that um, I suppose says to the Global South, not now, always later, because in a sense what they're, they're doing is providing a very precise technical measure of what's going on in a country and then asking it to make very small incremental improvements. And that kind of incremental measurement um, of, of whether a right is enjoyed or not um, obviously has no sense of urgency attached to it and it suits very nicely neoliberal conceptions of development through economic growth. So the idea being that the economy will grow, and um, in doing so, um, poverty, malnutrition, all those kinds of issues will will lessen as well. This is the kind of convergence narrative that you hear from people like the World Bank. And so on the one hand, it sort of um, pushes the urgency of justice, if you like, uh, to the background. And at the same time, it also focuses on state compliance. So when you're measuring um, something with a, an indicator, like the right to food, you'd be measuring a particular state's um, capacity or ability to to fulfil that right. So you'd be looking at Nicaragua or, um, I don't know, uh, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo or somewhere like that. But in foregrounding the state, what you end up doing is also um, excluding from discussions, I guess, the global economy, global capitalism, Uh, as a project which produces those very uneven um, uh, situations um, across the globe for for different states. So in some ways, indicators occlude global capitalism by focusing on the incremental improvement of of situations within states. Uh, So I argue this is a kind of way of informatizing uh, social rights um, in a way that both depoliticizes them um and i suppose takes away uh, the ability to to make justice demands that aren't somehow measured in decades rather than um, with some sort of sense of urgency i guess
0: great so next let's take a look at the role of um so-called big data in shaping the field of human rights as this is another quite important aspect of the book um there wasn't maybe still as a kind of techno-utopianism about statistical power of of really large data sets to make predictions and and understand more about the world, I suppose. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about how big data features in human rights discourses and how um, faith in its ability to uncover truths has affected the politics of the field?
1: Yeah, sure. So I guess um, at this point in the book, I sort of move to the present slightly more uh, and try and think about um, how um, the informational imaginary, if you like, of human rights, the idea that information is in of itself good and important uh, feeds into uh, big data. And so there are, there are actually um, lots of different ways in which big data and machine learning have become important to human rights. Uh, but the key idea really is that um, Machine learning can be used to sift through uh, large amounts of data or even assemble it together, um, especially in the case of uh, videos, in order to produce, I suppose, an even more complete and faithful picture of the real world. So the idea is that um, in some ways, big data um, unlocks um, the potential to be able to uh, produce even better, even more objective facts that can be used to um shame states again um and in some ways the problem i suppose that they they that it poses to or tries to overcome i guess in some way um is the fallibility of human memory or the unreliable witness or the incompleteness of evidence uh, all of these are very kind of practical problems for human rights groups who are interested in in trying to um uh, shame states or to even um garner prosecutions for human rights violations so in general this means is that as we've entered this era of big data human rights organizations um, have responded by investing um, more in data and in uh, data analysis techniques Um, and once again this quest for information is about kind of pinpointing events um, with more accuracy Um, again with the questions around, I suppose, the structures or involvement of capitalism in these events being kind of marginalised once again.
0: Great. So other than big data, another relatively recent juncture in the development of of digital tech is the emergence of social media. Um, And this is something you examine in the book when you look at how the Posting of evidence of violations um, on sites like Twitter and Facebook has affected human rights practices so could you tell us a little more about this this phenomenon really
1: yeah sure so this is um, or, or a couple of the key avenues for for big data and machine learning sort of uh, fold into this so it's it kind of good to talk about it um, social media for human rights groups has both become I suppose uh, a very practical problem of managing information but also a blessing in terms of the sheer abundance of information that's available and the kinds of of data that that they're interested in. So on the one hand, um, one key area, I suppose, is the amount of video evidence, if you like, that's posted on uh, social media sites like YouTube or Facebook of uh, things like um, aerial bombings, for example, but also other kinds of uh, human rights violation. So the key question there is how do you capture it all and how do you sort and sift through it? So algorithms and me- machine learning have become more and more important to human rights groups uh, because they're used both to scrape social media for this data and also to sort through it um, and also to splice it all together. So there's some machine learning techniques that are used to um, put together um, videos of human rights violations from multiple different perspectives Um and so you can see quite cl- clearly there that there's this idea that if we can just splice together um, enough of the um, information together, enough of the data, we'll have this kind of pure, unmediated um, object of the real Some in some ways that can be used as uncontroversial uncont- or incontrovertible proof uh, of violations. So that's one trajectory um, that I think is really interesting Um uh, and sort of, I suppose, reimposes that informational logic of human rights, where it's, it's really about kind of finding and producing depoliticized facts. On the other hand, there's also this idea that um, machine learning can be used to identify possible large-scale events before they happen or as they're happening, but um, early enough to be able to in- intervene in them successfully. So the idea is that... Um, it in, in, in Twitter, in the vast archive of it, uh, Twitter, sorry, there's if you like anomalies, uh, that can be detected. And if enough of them emerge, then this could be an indication that there's some sort of kind of mass violence about to take place or something like that. So this idea of prediction and early warning, um, which has been something, a kind of side project of human rights for, for, for a while now, but it's kind of re-emerging with, um, I suppose, a bit more force now that these technologies uh, potentially allow people to intervene before um, what's happening. But again, what's kind of interesting, I think, about uh, those kinds of practices is that the idea is that um, the predictions take place in real time on the basis of what's happening with tweets and so on. But there's never any question about how you might predict uh, violations on the basis of um, extreme inequalities, for example, or um, structures of capital or the dynamics of capital that make particular situations worse uh, in particular situations. So there is this very specific narrowing down of the terms on which predictions can be made, uh, which I think is very interesting and important in terms of thinking about how human rights politics has become very limited in the in the in the present, I guess.
0: Um so in your kind of your concluding chapter, um you really kind of tie everything together by assessing how we might think outside of uh, normative informational politics of human rights using work by um the likes of theorists including Donna Haraway um and Rich Maurizio Lazzarato, um who some of our listeners might have heard of. um so could you introduce us to Haraway's notion of situated situated knowledges and how her work provides a starting point for intervening in the dominant logic of human rights, um, and if possible, maybe explain your proposed alternative epistemological framework for human rights and, and what this means for contemporary information practices.
1: Mm. As, you, as you said that question, I confronted with perhaps the grandeur of my own arguments. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah... Um, Well, Haraway, I think, is a really interesting person. I mean, she's obviously um, uh, a feminist who's interested in the the critique of science and technology. Um, And um, I'm sure lots of people will be interested in or have heard of her work on cyborgs, for instance. But she's interested, I think, broadly speaking, in the kinds of epistemological practices and problems that I chart in the book. Um, And so her her essay on situated knowledge is she takes on... um, the notion of objectivity, um, as it's been developed, if you like, post-enlightenment Western science. Um, and she's interested in in the idea that it sort of strives for this notion of disinterested knowledge, um, that produces kind of purportedly faithful representations of the real as if untouched somehow by human intervention. Uh, and she takes this on from a, a kind of feminist perspective. And as she right, rightly points out, um, Any claim, if you like, to produce objective knowledge is um, imbued or the the person who's making that claim is often imbued with the capacity to hide or somehow leave their own position unmarked. And so in some ways, whenever we're producing or claiming to produce um, so-called objective knowledge, uh, we're also doing it from a social somewhere that um, by dint of the kind of power of Western knowledge and uh, bourgeois male Mm -hmm. Western knowledge, um, by dint of that, uh, were sort of hiding some of the mechanisms, the power and the the perspectives, if you like, uh, that go into the production of that knowledge. So that's really handy for me in the sense that it gives me some purchase to critique What human rights groups are doing, which is often making these same claims about their own information as being somehow objective and coming from nowhere. And so um, what she suggests, I guess, is that we should start from uh, a situated perspective um, or from the the perspective of situatedness and to think about the fact that uh, all knowledge comes from um, a particular kind of position. Um, and that we can begin making knowledge, but we have to be accountable to it. And for me, this provides an interesting way of thinking about an an alternative practice uh, of uh, knowledge production for human rights in the sense that um, it provides a way of thinking about um, information or possibly making information that um, isn't imbued with this kind of depoliticizing Uh, attempt to be, I guess, objective or faithful to the real in some way without um, acknowledging the kind of human intervention or production involved in making um, facts, information. So I guess that's what's handy about Haraway. On the other hand, um, and while it is a really great starting point, it also bumps up, I I guess, against a number of issues when it comes to human rights. So firstly, what happens to uh, recognition if you're no longer interested in sort of bending yourself backwards uh, to be recognized by the state, uh, but you're interested in situated perceptives? What happens when you want to try and develop truths that won't be recognized as such by uh, the state, by capitalism centers of hegemonic knowledge? And this is where Lazzarato becomes quite useful. because I, I guess essentially what he uh, proposes is that um, truth, the truth of a fact or, or knowledge, isn't um, an inherent property of an idea, but I guess I suppose a, a process. And so um, for for Lazzarao, truth is a kind of terrain of political struggle and that you have to fight for your perspective and to develop, um, if you like, a social bo- body of people, activists, who are willing to support that um, knowledge and to to fight for its truthfulness, if you like. And so I think when you're trying to think about alternative knowledge practices, something like that, which um, I guess reconnects knowledge making with activist practices, which is something that has become very disconnected uh, within the field of human rights, um, becomes really important. So then the task, if you like, of, of trying to produce alternative human rights information is to think about a situated perspective, uh, to think about um, the problem in terms of what's adequate to understand uh, the issue of, I don't know, someone who's in the global south who's suffering from human rights violations, uh, a situated perspective um, that is adequate to that would think about the broader terrain of um, uh, capitalism, structures of inequality, that are involved in the production of the violence that they face. And at the same time, uh, human rights um, knowledge that or uh, an approach to producing knowledge needs to recognise that if you're going to do that, you need to be able to, um, I suppose, fight or uh, battle, in the words of Lazzarato, for those truths. And so I guess that's the uh, optimistic note I sound, I guess, at the end of the book, Uh, but one that's perhaps also... um, uh, says that there's a lot of work to be done, I guess, to get there.
0: Yeah, and quite a good, nice note to end on this podcast with, I think. Um, so <laughs> finally, I think the question now is the question that we ask everyone, um, is uh, what are you working on now? Are there any projects, etc., that you'd like to mention?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. So one, I'm kind of increasingly interested in... Um, this model of information politics that we've sort of inherited from human rights, and how it works in this kind of um, increasingly post-truth authoritarian conjuncture that we're entering into. So that's one thing. Like, how how does some of the arguments that I make at the end of the book how does that relate to um, yeah this kind of digital authoritarian age that we're sort of emerging in? Uh, And then on the other hand, I've got some ideas about um, this notion of early warning that I mentioned. Um, And there's some work to be done, I think, on the histories of that and how that sort of comes from cybernetics. It's not really been done yet. So those are the two things that I'm kind of working on now. uh, And I guess uh, we'll see how that goes.
0: Yeah, great. Sounds really interesting. Um, Josh, thanks so much for joining me.
1: No, thank you very much.